0: Morning, harmony how we doing Good morning. Good morning. happy anniversary 64 years i have not been here for all of them no. although i will tell you my deacon sometimes makes me feel like i have been <laughs> you know i can tell you that uh, glad to be here with you we are in the most beautiful place in the world not the coolest place but the most beautiful place because we are in god's house surrounded by god's family um, a couple things i did want to bring to your attention this week in case you had not heard Um, uh, Very sorrowful news, we lost one of our members, Bernice Dickerson, this week. Um, Bernice, of course, had been sick for a a bit, uh, went in to the hospital and discovered that she had had stomach cancer and it was pretty aggressive. Um, God was merciful though and she passed rather quickly. Um, and we thank Ms. Moreno and uh, many members of the, the Hispanic Church who had been with her for many years as they used to be over to Hel- Elmendorf, who were present with her and, and spent some time with her. So uh, we pray that God is comforting her and giving her peace now. Uh, we will keep you guys up to date on Facebook and through email on any information we have about when the funeral services will be. Uh, we are working with her family to try to get those details squared away. So uh, keep her family in prayer. And, uh, you know, beautiful thing about God's family is how it brings all of us together. Uh, she was one of those special, unique people. We were, we were cracking up this week just talking about the different stories, because if you didn't get a chance to sit with Bernice, she was one of those ones where, like, 70% of the time she'd say something, you're like, how did that come up? Where did. And, like, I always loved, like, me and James, we'd be sitting there as a teacher, like, I don't even know how to get that comic back, back on track. I don't know how to redirect that back to what we were discussing. But then every other comment would just be this heartfelt, loving, gospel-filled uh, thing. And she was just a woman of, of unbelievable uh, gratitude, grace. She loved this church. Her family told us, you know, one of the things that she would always say is, nothing on Sundays, because on Sundays it got to be with my church family. And so uh, we are so blessed that God brought her to us, and we are glad that she is home with him. Uh, we'll keep you guys up to date on those things. Uh, one other thing I want to make you aware of, keep Brother Joe in prayer, uh, he had a fall earlier this week, uh, hurt his leg, went in uh, last night because it was, it was getting kind of bad, um, and they were concerned about blood clots. They've been running some tests on him, and they're kind of concerned about maybe some, some heart stuff. So I know Ava's stressed, trying to see what results come back. Uh, keep him in prayer, keep her in prayer. I'll keep you guys updated on that as well. Um, A small group of us is going to go visit this week, but he has asked as they're doing a bunch of tests that that we kind of let them have some space uh, so they can get those things done. Uh, Either as soon as I know they're coming out of church or hospital or that we can go visit, I'll make sure we get the word out to everybody. All right. So keep those two things in prayer, and we'll keep you guys communicating. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. We are in our series, The Gift of Suffering. We have three lessons left. And so if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. And uh, what's interesting to us as we talk about the subject of suffering is that for us as Christians, we want to make sure that we have a completely and utterly different perspective when it comes to suffering. Uh, Many people who are in the world, right, people who are not Christians, the pursuit of many of us, our focus is on comfort, ease, and enjoyment. And so when people have a focus in their lives of comfort, ease, and enjoyment, when they hit seasons of suffering, it feels completely devastating because not only do they feel that temporary pain that's inflicted either by relationships or physical ailments or or financial ailments, whatever it may be, not only do they have to face that, but then from a bigger picture perspective, they feel like I'm not progressing towards my goals in life. So they both have a temporary pain, and then long term they feel like they're not going anywhere. Now as Christians, you and I need to have a completely different perspective when it comes to suffering, because hopefully the goals of our lives are not comfort and ease and enjoyment. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean we don't want those things, but they are not the primary focus of a Christian. The primary focus of a Christian should be their intimacy of their relationship with Jesus Christ, And second, are they being used by God to accomplish his will and to build his kingdom? And so when you have that focus where you realize that, yes, I am close to God, and I hope that he picks me up and uses me, what you start to realize is sometimes in moments of suffering, that's where he's using you the most. And so for a Christian, we may actually find that times of suffering are actually those moments where we are praising God the most, where we have the biggest heart of gratitude because we realize God has chosen us, He has pulled us into darkness, and He is using us to reflect His light. And so I want to make sure you and I have a perspective in our lives where, one, we are constantly prepared for it, and when those seasons come our way, We don't just pray for them to quickly end, but rather we find that we are thriving in those seasons and that we are accomplishing God's work. Now, as we've been going through this series, we've come to three verses that we call the keys to the series. And again, if you haven't been here, my focus with the keys to the series, my hope is, is that, well, you won't remember everything I say. Hopefully, after eight weeks, you'll remember these three verses. And these verses will go into your toolbox, these will be verses that you know, you've meditated upon, that you've thought about, that you've prayed about, and when you yourself hit those seasons of suffering, the Holy Spirit will use these to help you, to encourage you, and to equip you. And so the three things we've kind of said to frame up this series are first, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the point of that verse is, is one, you and I need to expect suffering will come in our lives. It may not always be persecution. It could be trials. It could be physical pain. But you and I should realize and expect that at some juncture on this journey, we're going to go through suffering. I always kind of laugh when I hear these prosperity gospel preachers on TV talking about health, wealth, and prosperity and how God wants to give you everything and you're going to be rich and you're going to be successful because if you just look at who the best Christians ever were, it didn't end that way. I mean, like if we look at the superstar number one Christian, right? Who would that be? Guys, come on, Christians. Jesus? Yeah, that guy. Jesus, right? The best Christian ever was Jesus. And did his life end with him in a mansion? Old age? Lots of wealth and prosperity all around him? No, it did not. Now, did He have an abundance? Yes, He did, but it was not the kind of abundance we measure by earthly terms. It was the abundance that comes from the Spirit. It was the abundance that filled His heart. And so you and I need to realize we are on a path following Christ, and if His life ended on that cross, we should not be shocked if at any juncture our journey takes us down a similar path. So we expect suffering. Second thing, we know that we are equipped for suffering. Ephesians 6, 10-11 says this, Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So while not only do we expect this, you and I, because we have Christ, and because He has put the Holy Spirit within us, we are now uniquely equipped to face it. So while before we would have gone through suffering and all that would have gotten us through was our own strength, our own wisdom, our own abilities... What we now realize is, I don't need to lean on me, I need to lean on God, and God has set aside everything I need to be victorious in those moments. So I expect it, and I'm equipped for it. Third thing, third thing is in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And order? what do we know? We know not only is it going to happen, not only are we equipped for it, but frankly, God can accomplish great and amazing things in the midst of it. And so this is why I've encouraged you throughout this series, when you're in a time of suffering, do not pray, God, end this storm. Pray, God, teach me what I need to learn in this storm. God, shape me through the things that are happening in this storm. When you and I just pray for it to be over, we're missing the entire point. God doesn't just, with chaos, throw things your way. God has intention and purpose in the things in your life. And so when you hit a season of life where you're just like, I just wish this was over, you're missing that your loving Father, who has great plans for you, has brought those things to your feet with a purpose in mind, and that He has good planned in them. When you sit there and just wish it was over, you're missing a gift that your Father has there for you. And so we need to make sure that throughout these times we remember those three things. I should expect suffering, I'm equipped for suffering, and I can find purpose in suffering through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Now if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be reading in verses 1 through 11. Says in verse one: Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abdominal idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dispiation that they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near, therefore. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, three big things I want you to pull out of there. Three big things we need to pull from that passage as we break it down. And brothers and sisters, I I hope as we go through these series, you're learning not just what we're talking about, but you're also learning how you should be breaking down your own study time with God's Word. I can tell you as a younger man, there was many times in my life where my focus was how much of God's word could I get through. I used to set timers or I'd have these game plans on how much I could read to get through the Bible in a year. And you know what I started to realize? I started to realize I was more focused on the quantity I was getting through than the quality. And sometimes I'd sit there and I'd be so excited, I'm through a book, I finished that one, on to the next, and then I'd sit there and I'd go, so what did you really learn, Luke? What did you really learn? And you know what I'd realized? I didn't know. I was so focused on getting through, I hadn't taken the time to really learn what God was saying. I would rather you spend a week on one verse, but walk away with that verse, understanding it, cherishing it, and using it in your life, than you spending a week to get through three books. And when I ask you what you learned, you go, I don't know. I read the Bible, though. Take your time as you're going through God's word and prayerfully learn to break down the truth that he is presenting. First thing I want you to see, as Christians, you and I have a responsibility to do what? To live for the will of God. So if we look at that first section there, right? He says, he talks about suffering. He says we should arm ourselves with the same purpose that Jesus had in life, which Jesus, did he stay away from suffering? Did he run from it? Did he let it stop him moving forward? No. In fact, Jesus, more boldly than all of us, knew exactly what suffering was laying ahead. Like, have you ever realized it's actually a huge blessing that you don't know what tomorrow faces? Like, Because there are some days, if you knew what was coming tomorrow, you'd be like, "Uh uh-uh, not moving forward. You'd be so hit with grief and worry and mental suffering that you just shut down. It always amazes me Christ knew exactly where he'd end. That whole journey with us, all the moments of joy, of laughter, of happiness in his life, he did all that under the cloud of knowing he'd end up on that cross. And he still kept moving forward. And so what Peter's saying to us is, you and I, we've lived in the flesh. We've spent that season there. Each and every one of us, no matter how young we've come to Christ, we have spent our lives, for a portion of them, chasing after our own will and our own desire. We've been there, done that. It is now time for us to push that away and to live life for the will of God. Our focus isn't us anymore. Our focus is, God, show me your will and use me to accomplish it. And I know I probably say this almost every week, but this is the defining quality of a true disciple of Jesus Christ versus what we call cultural Christians. Have you ever run into people who are like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And you're like, really? I can't tell by the way you entertain yourself. I can't tell by the way you drink. I can't tell by the activities you fill your life with. I couldn't tell except for the fact that you just told me. The difference between those who say they're Christians and those who are the disciples is those who say they're Christians, they wake up each day and they go, God, here's my desires. You make them happen. I want this. I want this. I want this. I want this. And hey, by the way, I've been doing these things, so you should do this for me. And when we have that mentality, let's be real. We are not acting like servants. We've actually taken the relationship with God and inversed it. We're acting like we're the masters, and he's here to serve our beck and call. That's not how it works. A true disciple of God wakes up and goes, God, forget my will. Please show me yours and use me each day to live in it. That's what I want to do. I want to be in your will. I want your will to happen in my life. It's like when Jesus taught his people to pray, this is how he started. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He started his prayer with a focus on, remember, who is God? He is the Almighty Father. The one whose name is above all other names. He is the King. And our prayer, God, it is shaped mainly not by what I need, but that my prayer is, I know your will. That's what I want. And I'll be honest, this is hard. I mean, if you just sit down some weeks and evaluate your prayers, do you ever see how much time you spend talking and asking for things? Yeah, I kind of equate it sometimes there's there's been moments in my life where I I pick up the phone, call God and I'm like God I need these ten things and then I hang up and I imagine he's got to be up there in heaven like how do you think I'm going to help you when you don't even listen you call me you drop all these requests and then you fall asleep hey you want answers, you want direction you want advice and guidance, you want to know my will get into my word be quiet for a few minutes and let me talk So many of us, though, when we pray, our prayer life is just filled with requests. And none of those requests are, God, teach me. God, speak to me. That should be the number one prayer of a Christian. It is not that you're asking God to meet your needs, but that you understand what He's doing in your life. That should be the biggest desire of your heart if that's not happening, brothers and sisters, I can tell you there's going to be a lack of fulfillment. There's going to be a lack of intimacy. And there's going to be many moments in your life where you're going to be like, why isn't He making this happen for me? It's because you're running the completely wrong way. Understand His will and live in His will. Second, prepare for the judgment of God. So he says in verse 4, and all these, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses. And so he's saying there's going to be people around you. And this is going to be your family. This is going to be friends. This is going to be the people you live with. That when they see you being holy, it's not going to make sense to them. They're going to look at you and be like, why are you being so weird? What's wrong with you? What happened? I was actually talking to a family who's been coming to the church probably for about a year now. And they were saying that the family members were starting to give them this feedback. Like, what's up with you guys? You're acting strange. And that strangeness was, is they weren't just coming to church anymore, they were being the church. They were taking the word of God into their lives, and they weren't just leaving it for Sunday mornings, they were starting to live it out Monday through Friday. And people were starting to look at them and go, you're different, you're different. That should be a hallmark of the Christian life. If your friends and family don't think you're different than them and they don't know the Lord Jesus, something's wrong. People that don't know Jesus should look at you and be like, you are unbelievably different. And if that's not there, then you and I got to look at our own lives. And he says, so they're going to look at you, they're going to be surprised at your actions, but remember this. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, it's funny, because Christians, we don't really like to talk about this anymore. We don't really like to talk about God's wrath. We don't like to really talk about sin. We don't really like to talk about judgment. But every single one of us will stand before God Almighty and be judged for our lives. And I want you to just like just pause for a second and realize, understand the magnitude of that judgment. You remember in the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to people about the, the commandments, and he says, "You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery." You've heard it said you should not murder. I tell you, if you look at your brother with hate in your heart, you're a murderer. So, like, understand when we stand before Him for judgment, it won't even just be the actions. He will sit there and take us through our thoughts, our motives, our desires, and call us to account for those. I am so thankful that Jesus is going to show up and cover me in his righteousness because we would be there for a long time. Like, do you ever just realize how ungood your own thoughts are? Like, look at the actions. Like, do you ever have one of these thoughts pop into your head and you're like, I can't believe I just thought that? Regular thing, like, I, I will regularly have thoughts popping in my head like, if my church knew I thought that, they'd fire me right now. <laughs> it is so good that there is not like a printout every day of all the thoughts in my head that gets distributed for people to read. Now if you're a millennial, I guess that's called Twitter, but you know, I would suggest you guys to be careful when you use those things because as we've seen, nothing ever gets deleted, right? Think before you talk. one day you and I will stand before God Almighty in His perfection and we will be asked about what we did with our lives. Now, there's two ways to look at that. Some of us go, I don't want to think about that because, man, that list is going to be long. That makes me feel guilty. That makes me feel shameful. That makes me feel sinful. It makes me feel dirty. And you know what? It should. As a Christian, though, you know the beauty is, is the thought that follows right after that. I can't believe He washed away all that sin. Amen. I'll be real with you. I hate that the American church has gone away from talking about sin. And it's not because I want everybody to feel bad about their lives, but it's because only when you understand the debt you owed do you truly understand the love that He has given you. I it's a funny thing, and I hate that it's this way, but for the majority of my life, people who have come to Christ later in life and after really bad seasons have this unbelievable love for Him. Because they, they know. They, they look in the mirror and go, nobody should have ever loved me. Like, there were seasons of my life, my own flesh and blood wouldn't let me in their houses. My mama didn't want to be around me. And that Jesus came to me in those seasons and He looked at all that, that no one else could forgive me. And He washed it clean and He invited me into His family. And that He lets me be pure and blameless. Oh my goodness. I don't understand it. I've been i some church people, people who grew up in the church, they miss us sometimes because they fooled themselves into thinking that they're, they're righteous and holy. They fooled themselves into thinking, well, you know, I mean, honestly, I've been on the right path for so long, I do more good than bad. No. The moment you and I don't look in the mirror and see that we're sick is the moment we're not open to the mighty healer healing our hearts. And so, don't ever shy away from acknowledging your sin. Don't ever try to minimize it. And in fact, there should be moments and regular times in your week that you sit down and you think about the ways you've failed. Not so that you build up a debt that makes you feel like you can't move forward, but so that you can take it, you can leave it at His feet and turn away from it and then rejoice that you have a God that loves you so much He can wipe all that away. As we have forgotten to talk about this, as we have refused to talk about sin and judgment, We have minimized what God has done for us and he has moved from being our master and savior to being our buddy and friend. Frankly, I don't need another buddy. I need a Lord. I need a savior. I need someone to come in and to clean me up where no one else can. And what Peter's reminding us is not only those people who run in the flesh, but us, we will stand for judgment one day. Are we confident when we do that that we will have Christ right there by us going, Father, it's okay there with me. Father, it's okay. I have paid for all these things. I hope we have that confidence in our hearts. Look at Romans 14, 12. It says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I know this. I know when I stand before him one day that my negative will far outweigh my positive. But you know what? I sure hope I have some moments I can talk to him about. I want to have some things that I can tell him, God, I tried to do this. God, I gave everything I had for that. God, I poured myself out here where you asked me to be, Lord. And I hope there are some things he'll point out and go, good job, son. Well done. You gave it everything you had. Good work. Man, I can't wait to hear those words. And what Peter's pointing to, brothers and sisters, is, look, yes, in times of suffering and even in times of temptation, the world offers you temporary, immediate enjoyment. What do you want more? Do you want that or do you have that focus of, man, I can't wait to sit before him and have him look at me and say, good job, son. Good job, daughter. What motivates you more each day? That temporary pleasure or that desire to stand before Him and say, Good work? The Christian knows the answer to that question. Third thing. Now, I think you've heard this one before. I hope so. Love God, love people. It's so funny. We make Christianity so complicated, and it's not. It's a very simple thing. Love God, love people. That's pretty much the whole thing. What gets hard is, is actually doing it. But understanding it is not that difficult. And so he reminds us, look, suffering's going to come. In those moments, you live for God, and you live for His will. You stand not with worry about what today brings, but about how you're going to handle that moment of judgment. And what gets you through is, is you keep focused on the two most basic things of all. You love God and you love people. And that's why he says in verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. If you have relationships with anybody, you better know that verse. That verse should be something you use all the time. Because you know what we do to each other? We hurt each other. Even sometimes unintentionally. Have you ever been amazed at your own ability to hurt somebody? Like I've done this before where I actually thought I was acting and behaving in a way that would bless someone. And I'm so bad at it, I still ended up hurting them. You ever done that? And you're sitting there and you just wanna be like, I wish you could understand that my whole intention and desire in this was not to hurt you, It it was to bless you. I was trying to do good. I'm just such a mess up that even sometimes when I try to do good, I fail. No a verse like this gets you through all those moments. You don't have to be perfect, and nobody is. We're going to fail each other. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to mess things up. But in those moments, we have love that fills all those gaps. We have love that covers all those sins. That's so why if you're married, you've got to know this thing, and you've got to have Christ in your marriage. You don't have Him there, pouring out His love. I don't know how you get past the things you do to each other. But it is His love that continually smooths the path. Then he continues in verse 10, he says, As each one received a special gift, employ in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So what does he say? He says, not only do you love people and serve people for them, but you do it because you respect the fact that what you have isn't yours. It was given to you by your Father. Okay. Right? The love that's in your heart, the talents and gifts that you have in your body, those aren't there by accident. They're not there because you're awesome. They're there because God the Father, when He created you, gave you those. And by you using those for his kingdom and in love, you glorify him. You show him that you love him. And so, brothers and sisters, throughout all this, Peter is just reminding us of the basics. And basically, this whole book has been about the basics. But the reason he keeps coming back to him is he knows that it is you and I in the times of suffering. That are tempted so much to turn away from these things. But right? when we hit seasons of pain and hurt, we become more and more selfish. Right? We turn in more and more inward. Like have you ever hit those moments of, of sadness and maybe even depression where you don't want to go anywhere? You don't want to do anything? You don't want to talk to anyone. Right? You just want to lock yourself in your house and do nothing you know what that is? That's Satan sucking you back in because he knows the more selfish you are, the bigger your pains will feel, and the less likely you are to be healed. In times of suffering, what gets us through is going out and doing what God has always asked. To not live for ourselves, but to live for others. I want to leave you with one last story. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is approached with a a question that his enemies think is going to be difficult. And he ends up answering that with one of the most famous parables that we've all probably heard since we were little children. It says in Luke chapter 10 verse 25, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, that being Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Let me pause real quick there. Do you understand what's happening? This is not an ignorant man. In fact, he just said the most basic truth of what the Bible is about. Love God, love people. He knows that truth. But even in knowing that truth, he has applied it completely and utterly wrong. One, he's asking, what must I do to earn heaven? What's the answer to that question? You can't. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn heaven. Nothing. You could never, ever earn it. It can only be given to you. Second, though he knows the verse, look at what he's trying to basically say in verse 29. And who is my neighbor? Why would he ask that question? He asks that question because he knows what God wants, but he doesn't want to do it. Like, okay, love God, I can do that, but love my neighbor, like everyone? Can I please shrink that down? Is that just the people that live in the house to the left and right of me? Okay, maybe I'll be generous. The people across the street and behind me, so four houses, that's it? Or maybe just the people in my house. Or maybe just the people at my church, right? Shrink this down for me, God, because it kind of feels like maybe it's everybody. (laughs) Let's be real, that's not possible. And so look at what Jesus answers. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell to the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, The one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said, Go and do the same. And so the structure of the story is beautiful, right? Because the first two people that come across this fellow Israelite are holy people. One's a priest. Priests back then knew most of the Bible by memory. Clearly this man knew that you were supposed to love God and to love people. And here he comes across one of his brothers, another Israelite. And as he sees him, what does he do? Does he come and help him? No, he literally walks to the other side of the road so he doesn't even have to pass him. Let's be real, you ever done that before? You ever done that downtown when you're walking by a homeless person? See him up ahead a block? Uh, I don't want to pass by. I'm going to go to the side of the street. Right, or, you know, the one I do sometimes is they're walking and panhandling and I, I act like I'm looking around the car or not make eye contact because I don't want it to be clear to them that I see them and I'm not going to care for them. Right, that's too blatant. This priest sees this man in hurt and goes to the complete other side of the road. Who follows behind a Levite, which back then was almost like a deacon. right? Someone who worked in the, work, the day-to-day life of the church. He understand God's word, saw God's word at practice. And here he is outside of that holy realm. Surely he's going to stop. Nope, same thing. Let me go to the other side of the road. The third person who comes is a Samaritan. Now this man, this man shouldn't have stopped. In fact, this whole story almost sums up the entire sermon. Everything culturally that this man had been taught, was to hate that man that was dying. Samaritans were treated by Israel as half-breeds, almost not human. In fact, the Israelites hated the Samaritans so much that when they were traveling, they would actually go two days longer on their journey so that they could go around Samaria and not go through it. They felt that their city was so polluted and so dirty, they didn't even want to be in it. And so this Israelite, who has probably spent most of his life, in at least the context of his nation, has hated this Samaritan, is laying there hurt. If anybody should have crossed to the other side, if anybody had ever been taught by their culture to cross to the other side, it was that Samaritan. But in that moment, he didn't live according to the flesh. He didn't live according to what the world had taught him. And said in that moment, he knew that he had a duty to love people. And he stops to help that man. And let's be real. We know in stopping to help that man, it's not for anything he's ever done for him. It can only be because of his own moral compass or because he knows that God Almighty has asked him to. That that man that's lying in his path isn't there by accident. He has been put there by God. And that it is the will of God that he helped him. And what I love is he doesn't just stop and bandage him up, care for his wounds. What does he do? He puts him on his own animal. He takes him into town. He gets him a place to stay. He covers the expenses. And then he says, hey, I'll be back. You take and spend whatever you need to get this man back on his feet. I'll pay the difference when I come back again. That's love. The joyful sacrifice for someone else. you don't just feel it, but you act in it. You, with intention, act in a way that is sacrificed for others. That's love. That's what we're supposed to be. What Peter says is, that's you every single day of your life, whether you are in the green pastures or you are in the valley of the shadow of death the point of the book of Peter brothers and sisters is the context of where you and I stand does not change our duty there are some of us we only want to do these things when the sun's shining on us we only want to do these things when our own life is going good the point of Peter is I don't care what you're going through you always be that Samaritan you always stop to help even if you yourself are in pain. That's the kind of people that God wants us to be. Let's go to the Lord of prayer.